Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us to cultivate an intellectually fulfilling Christian worldview with uh, apologetics, systematic theology, and biblical studies. Now today, is my mic plugged in? Yes. Today I'm not really going to give you anything, no new material per se, uh, because... Um, I'm not feeling very well. I should have recorded sooner, uh, but for one thing, I couldn't figure out what exactly I wanted to talk about on the podcast. Uh, I hadn't booked any guests. I'm hoping to have Brian Gadawa on soon to talk about his Chronicles of the Nephilim novels. Um, but now, today, uh, you know, I'm supposed to have an episode out every single Saturday, and today I'm just not feeling very well. Don't worry. I it's not I'm not sick. I'm just tired. I don't know if I didn't get enough sleep. It certainly I certainly feels like I got enough sleep. I had some very weird dreams last night. I was in a very deep sleep and I slept all night. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just don't feel good, but anyway, uh it's not the COVID-19. It's not the coronavirus. I thought about maybe doing another episode about the coronavirus. You know, last week had an episode about the, um, you know, the problem of evil and uh, how, you know, why, why would God uh, permit the coronavirus? Um, and I also talked about whether or not it is Christian or unchristian to close churches during this pandemic, and I. I, I was asked that to maybe do an episode on whether or not this is a sign of the end. You know, a lot of Christians, especially dispensationalists, they take um, a lot of the passages, like the Olivet Discourse, to be referring to our future. Um, and so when you have things like blood moons and earthquakes and wars and stuff like that, especially if they're all clustered together... And they're like, oh, it's a sign. Jesus is coming back. The end is near. And, uh, I, you know, if you've read my papers on CerebralFaith.net or if you've listened to the podcast episodes I did last year, you'll know that I think that most of what we take to be end times Bible prophecies was fulfilled in our past. Uh, I'm what is called a partial preterist or an orthodox preterist that means i believe that most biblical prophecies in the new testament have been fulfilled uh in the uh, near the end of the first century now that does i'm not a full preterist i do believe there's going to jesus is going to come again in his human form he's going to judge the world he's going to uh raise the dead and it's going to recreate the heavens and the earth there are a few prophecies that have not been fulfilled but most of, of the prophecies, especially as it pertains to the, like, natural disasters and moral evils and stuff like that, you know, a lot of that's found in the Olivet Discourse, and I believe that was fulfilled in the first century. And so I thought, yeah, you know, I might do that. But then I thought, you know, what what could I say that isn't different 
from the episode I did last year in which I talked about the uh, – in which I read my paper on the Olivet Discourse. You know, there's really nothing I could add to that. Now, of course, what I'm going to play for you today kind of makes that point a moot point because what I'm going to play for you is – uh, if you've followed my material for a long time, it's going to be a lot really familiar to you. Uh, but if you haven't, then, uh, you know, maybe it will be some new material. Uh, hopefully, I mean, the main reason I'm not going to do uh, any kind of new podcast episode, and I'm just going to insert an old audio file, is because I'm not feeling well. I, hopefully, Hopefully you can tell that by the the tone of my voice i'm just very lethargic today but it's not the coronavirus i'm just tired I just i don't know i guess i don't know but uh anyway since it is easter i thought you know if i'm going to put some old audio of me talking about something apologetic why not do the resurrection and few years ago, actually several years ago, it was, I, I, I think it was like early 2015, so this was what, this was a good, this was, pro, this was, this was a, exactly five years ago, I was recording a lecture into my Sony recorder, not the one I have now, but the old one, uh, doing the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because I wanted to I wanted to practice my presentation skills. Uh, should I be invited to speak in front of an audience or something? So in my bedroom, I just turned on the the speaker and I and I just started talking. I just you know I had rehearsed it and I thought you know what uh, maybe I'll record this for some reason like maybe for Maybe as a witnessing tool, maybe I'll put it on a flash drive and give it to skeptics who want to, you know, hear about the evidence for the resurrection or something. I don't, can't really remember why I chose to record it. Um, but back then I did do, I did rehearse doing arguments in private time, soliloquies as they would call it. And so, unfortunately, uh, because I never actually planned on releasing it anywhere. I didn't really take that good of a care to check for quality. So you're going to hear me breathing into the microphone every now and then. It's not terrible, but it's not quite as good as if I had, you know, thought, yeah, this is going to... Yeah, five years from now, five years into the future, I'm going to put this up on a podcast. You know, if I had known that, uh, then I might have taken some more care. But you'll still be able to understand what I'm saying. And because it's Easter, it's going to be uh, me talking about the minimal facts case for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, some of the – most of the arguments are by and large the same. I haven't really um, – I've revised some of my arguments. If you've read my book, My Redeemer Lives – You'll know that I revised some of the arguments. Like I know, like I know now that 
even though the synoptics are dependent on one another by and large, there are some things that they include that shows that they were using other like Luke and Matthew were using other sources besides Mark for some of their narratives because some of the stuff that they include like Matthew's guard at the tomb that's not in Mark so if it's not in Mark he couldn't have he couldn't have copied it from Mark because there's nothing there to copy and like the ridiculing of Jesus uh, by the thieves well that's not in Mark either so where did Luke and Matthew get it couldn't have gotten it from Mark they got to either from their own recollections if you believe the gospels or eyewitness accounts or from another an earlier source but they couldn't have gotten it from Mark. So, you know, as far as the, um, as far as some of the arguments for the minimal facts, they're act they were actually much stronger than I realized when I recorded this, but by and large, they're the same. So like, I'll say that there's seven independent sources for Jesus's crucifixion. Well, if you read my current material, you'll say, you'll see that I s include nine, but other than small revisions like that, that actually make my argument stronger. They're not recant. I don't recant anything. It's actually, oh, it was the case is stronger than I initially thought it was. But uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to get back with some new material. Okay. <laughs> How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Is there any evidence that Jesus of Nazareth really came back to life after being crucified? Apart from presupposing the, div uh, the divine inspiration of the Bible, how can we be certain that Jesus really did come back to life? I mean, you could... One way to know is through presupposing the Bible's inspiration. You could say, well, the Bible is divinely inspired, it's God's word, and it says Jesus rose from the dead, so he must have really risen from the dead. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But that approach, that argument, would only work if you're talking to Christians. But of course, they already believe the Bible is God's word, they already believe it's divinely inspired, and they already believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So, how do how do we know apart from presupposing his inspiration? Because you see, when you if you use this argument against non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Wiccans, Buddhists, just about anybody who doesn't accept the Bible as God's word, you will be seen as begging the question. Well, I think that there is a good way to know that Jesus rose from the dead. There is good historical evidence for this event. And if it really happened, then Christianity is true. God, God raised Jesus from the dead. Christianity is true. And everything, every worldview, every religion that contradicts Christianity is false. Because if Jesus claimed to be God, and Jesus, and then God raised Jesus from the dead, then that is God implicitly putting his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said and did. 
God would not raise a heretic and a blasphemer. So if Jesus rose from the dead, then he must have been telling the truth when he said that he was God. Moreover, we can accept many other things that Jesus taught. What did, Je what did Jesus teach about the Old Testament, for example? Well, he believed that it was divinely inspired. That's why he quoted it in his temptations when he was tempted by the devil in, in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He quoted the Old Testament because he believed that because it was God's word, it had the power over Satan and all the devils of hell. So, if Jesus claimed to be God and rose from the dead, then God is implicitly putting his stamp of approval on that teaching as well, on Jesus' teaching that the Old Testament is divinely inspired. And therefore, we can have confidence that everything the Old Testament says is true. That Adam and Eve really were historical individuals. That the Exodus happened. You know, how many times have you heard skeptics say, there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus whatsoever, and that really makes it highly suspect. That's, it's probable that it never occurred. Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's God placing his stamp of approval on everything he said and did. So, did Jesus teach that the Old Testament hap that the Exodus occurred? Well, he believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired. So he must have believed that the, old, uh, that the Exodus occurred. What about the authorship of the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua? Well, Jesus said that these were the writings of Moses. So the resurrection gets you the entire Christian worldview. If it's true, Christianity is true. If the resurrection did occur, we can have confidence about so many things in the Bible. I believe in heaven and hell. I believe that when Christians die, they go, their souls, their immaterial souls go to heaven to await the bodily resurrection. And I believe everyone who has done evil in this life and has not repented of their sins end up in hell for eternity. Why do I believe these things? Do I have any evidence for heaven and hell? Well, no, not directly. But I do have Jesus' teachings. He said that people who believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And he said that those who reject him end up in hell. And if Jesus rose from the dead, God put his stamp of approval on that. The resurrection means that whatever Jesus says carries a lot of weight. I believe in angels and demons because Jesus taught that angels and demons were real. I don't have any direct evidence or hardly any evidence at all for angels and demons other than Jesus' teachings. But he rose from the dead. So how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I am going to be using what is called a minimal facts approach. The minimal facts approach is using only those data that are so strongly and powerfully attested that nearly every scholar who studies the subject accepts the, accept this, these as historical facts, even the skeptical non-Christian scholars. More, that is one criteria for being a minimal fact. It has to be very well evidenced and nearly every scholar who studies the subject accepts them as facts. Even the skeptical scholars. Those are the, those are the two... 
Those are the two criteria for being a minimal fact. Now, I will be examining the New Testament documents, but I am not going to be quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. That would be circular reasoning. So no, I'm not quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. Rather, I'm going to be examining the New Testament documents, and I'm going to be applying certain tests of authenticity, certain principles, to the New Testament documents, the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, that, uh, that historians apply to other non-biblical documents, secular documents. They use these criteria in examining historical documents when they're trying to figure out, okay, is this thing that we're reading about really true? Did this happen? So they, they take the documents, they apply these criteria or these principles to the text, and if the passage in that historical document passes one or more of these historical tests, then they conclude that it's very probable that it was true, that it actually happened. And that's what I'm going to be using with the New Testament. I'm not going to be uh, citing the epistles and from the Gospels because I believe it's the Word of God. I'm just going to be treating the New Testament documents just like I would any other set of documents as just a set of historical documents that claim to be able to tell us something about Jesus. So this is not, I repeat, not a the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it kind of approach. In fact, non-Christian historians use the New Testament in exactly the same way. They examine, when they're trying to figure out things about the life of the historical Jesus, they will take the New Testament documents and apply these very same historical tests to them to see, okay, what can we know about the historical Jesus? Certainly, they don't uh, presuppose the divine inspiration of the New Testament. They're skeptics. They're, many of them are atheists, agnostics, Muslims. Uh, they don't accept the New Testament as the Word of God, and yet they take these historical tests and apply them to the New Testament to, to see whether what they say is true. So oftentimes I like to ask the non-believer if non-Christian scholars can use the New Testament in this way, why can't I? Okay, well enough of that. For now on to the minimal facts. What are the minimal facts? They are, number one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, his tomb was found empty the following Sunday morning. Number three, that the twelve disciples sincerely believed that Jesus appeared to them alive after his death. Number four, that a, a skeptic named James converted because of what he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus to himself. And number five, that a, that a church persecutor named Saul of Tarsus converted to Christianity because he believed he saw the risen Jesus with his own two eyes. So, number one, Jesus' death by crucifixion. Number two, Jesus' empty tomb. Number three, the twelve disciples sincerely believed they saw the risen Jesus appear to them. Number four, the conversion of the skeptic James. And number five, the conversion of the church persecutor Paul. So how do we know that the first minimal fact, that Jesus died by crucifixion, is true? 
We know this because it is multiply attested in several independent documents. Four of them are secular in nature. So, the first of this is the writings of Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, who was born in AD 37 and wrote his Antiquities of the Jews in about AD 90. And in a passage, he writes... Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal uh, men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold wonders. This is a very early uh, secular source attesting to the crucifixion of Jesus. However, it is not without controversy. Many skeptics will point out that we can't use this document from Josephus as good evidence for the existence and crucifixion of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. Why? Well, because there are obvious interpolations in the text. It's pretty clear that a Christian scribe messed with the text because in this passage Josephus says things that a Christian would never say. He says, uh, if it be lawful to call him a man. That seems to suggest that Jesus is more than human. He also says, right, out, outright, he says, he was the Christ. Okay, uh, he's, he's, Josephus is saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Then he says, for he appeared to them alive the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold wonders. Josephus was a Jew, not a Christian. He would never only a Christian would say that Jesus was the Christ and that he appeared to the disciples three days after his crucifixion. So are the skeptics right? Can we not really use this as good evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus for that first minimal fact? Well, no, I don't think so. The vast majority of scholars believe that the uh, testimonium Flavianum, which is what this uh, what this passage is called, that the testimonium Flavianum was not completely invented by a Christian scribe, but that there was a genuine passage about Jesus's crucifixion written by Josephus that was only mi uh, mildly touched up a bit by a Christian scribe. Uh, Dr. Timothy McGrew compares the passage about Jesus and Josephus. Uh, to a painting of the Mona Lisa with a mustache and a little goatee beard drawn on it. And he says that just as we would not conclude that there was no original, pa uh, no original painting, just as we would not conclude that the painting was completely invented by a uh, vandal, in the same way, we, would not con we should not conclude that the entire Testimonium Flavianum was created by a Christian scribe. In the case of the Mona Lisa painting, only the mustache and the little goatee beard was added to the painting, but the rest is what originated with Leonardo da Vinci. That's, and I think that's a good analogy for the Josephus text. This is what is called the partial authenticity theory. 
and there are very good reasons to hold to it. The first reason, and probably the most persuasive, is that when you remove these later Christian additions to the text, the passage flows very smoothly. You don't miss the interpolations. You don't miss the obvious Christian language at all. It's almost as if they were never there. So, when you take out these Christian additions, the the passage flows smoothly and coherently. It flows smoothly and coherently. Let me let me quote that passage again without the Christian additions uh, uh, in order to get my point across. Now there was about this Jesus. Now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man. He was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And Pilate, at the at the suggestion of the prince of some of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. There was the passage without the Christian, uh, without the Christian language, and it made sense, didn't it? It was coherent. So this is uh, a lot of scholars will say that this is good reason to think that there was that most of it is Josephan. Uh, it's written in his characteristic style and vocabulary, and when you take out the Christian editions the passage flows smoothly. You don't miss them at all. A second reason is that jo uh, Josephus later refers to Jesus' brother James. Um, in the passage, Jane, uh, Josephus is reporting how the Jewish Sanhedrin had James and some others stoned to death for being, quote, breakers of the law, unquote. Um, and in the passage, he says, they brought together uh, they they assembled together the Sanhedrin and brought before them the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, whose name was James, together with some others, and having accused them as being lawbreakers, he delivered them over to be stoned. Josephus does not go into any further description of who this Jesus is. All he says is that the Sanhedrin brought James, who is the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, and then they handed him over to be stoned. That's it. Now this is very peculiar. But not if there was an earlier reference to Jesus in, the Jos in Josephus' passage. Because in that earlier reference, uh, Josephus gives a very brief description of who Jesus is. You know, he was... Um, you know, he was a wise man. He was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He had a following of many Jews and Gentiles. And at the suggestion of the principal men among us, which we can only assume is the Jewish Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate had him crucified. You know, so he gives a brief description of who Jesus was and what he did in the, in the testimony in Flavianum. So when you come to the James passage, Josephus doesn't need to explain who Jesus is because he already did that in an earlier passage. In other words, it seems like Josephus is saying, hey, you know that guy I talked about earlier, the one who was crucified by Pilate? Yeah, this, this James person, this is that guy's brother. So the James passage in which Jesus does ref uh, Josephus does refer to Jesus, that seems to suggest that there was an earlier reference to Jesus. 
But I think most powerfully is that in 1971, a scholar named Shlomo Pines published some work on an Arabic manuscript he was doing. And in this Arabic manuscript, you have the Testimonium Flavianum without the ham-handed bits that seem like Christian interpolations. So, Jose I think that we have very good reasons for concluding that Josephus really did talk about Jesus. And he says that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate at the suggestion of some of the principal men among us. Um, so we have one secular source that refers to Jesus' crucifixion. Also, Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, mentions that Jesus died by crucifixion. In the passage, he's talking about how uh, Rome burned to the ground. Rome was set on fire, and a lot of people blamed Nero for starting the fire. So in order to get the guilt off of himself, he accused Christians and went after them. He, he started a very severe persecution to try to get the guilt off of himself, saying, no, it was the Christians who did it, and I'm going to punish them for it. Uh, and, so, and then Tacitus says, Christus, the founder of the name, that is the name Christian, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, during the reign of Tiberius. And then he says, and the Pernicus superst uh, superstition was it that it was um, it was stopped for a for a while? He and then he says, but then it arose again in Judea and then spread to Rome. So Cornelius Tacitus Tacitus reports that Jesus died by crucifixion. Also, Marabar Serapion, writing to his son from prison, says. And what did the Jews gain by the murder of their wise king? It was only after that that their kingdom was abolished. Uh, and in the wider context, uh, Mara is talking about uh, all of these different philosophers like Socrates and some others. And he's, and he's talking about how people killed them because of their teachings. And then he mentions terrible things that happened to the nations that put them to death. And with regards to Jesus, he says, what, do, what did the Jews gain from the executing their wise king? It was only after this that their kingdom was abolished. And there he's most likely referring to the destruction, to the siege of Jerusalem in AD 66 and the destruction of the temple in 70. Also, Lucian of Samosata, the Greek satirist, uh, writes that Jesus died by crucifixion. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. He says that Jesus gave them their novel rights and was crucified on that account. So, Lucian says that Jesus died by crucifixion. And of course, everybody knows that the four Gospels clearly say that Jesus died by crucifixion, as do, as do the New Testament epistles. At most, we have, at a, at a bare minimum, we have seven independent documents that report to Jesus' death by crucifixion. This is very, very impressive evidence. Now, why is this? Because when historians are doing, when they're doing history, and when they're trying to figure out whether something in the past occurred, one of the historical tests they apply is called the principle of multiple attestation. Now, what that is, is 
When you find an event mentioned in two or more independent sources, what you're reading about is very, very likely to be historical. Because the more and more independent sources you find something mentioned in, the more and more likely it is that it occurred. The more and more independent sources that an event or saying or person is mentioned in, the less and less likely it is that all of these different people made up the same thing. How likely is it that seven people, seven authors, independently fabricated the same fiction? It's absurd. Seven people would not make up the same fiction all on their own. Um, and in fact, this historical principle has an ascending scale of power, uh, a potentially ascending scale of probability. So, for example, if you find a historical event mentioned in two independent sources, then it's likely to be historical. If you find it in three independent sources, it's very likely to be historical. If you find it in four independent sources, it's very, very, very likely to be historical. If you find it in five independent sources, it's very, 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 very likely to be historical. If you find it in ten independent sources, it's just insanity to uh, claim that it was fiction or made up at that point. Because all of these different people would not fabricate the same fiction independently. So with the death of Jesus, we have seven independent sources that attest to his death, at a minimum. Probably more than that, if you, if you believe that John, the Gospel of John, is independent from the Synoptic Gospels. And then you'd have eight. So we have Josephus, Tacitus, Marabar Serapion, Lucian of Samosata, we have the Synoptic Gospels, we have the Gospel of John, and we have the New Testament Epistles. So we have very... We, th th it is very multiply attested. In fact, the skeptical scholar John Dominic Crossan, who is the founder of the Jesus Seminar, said that Jesus died by crucifixion is as certain as anything historical can be. But I should, note, I should note that not only is it multiply attested, but it is multiply attested in enemy sources. So it's enemy attested as well. Another of the principles that historians use when examining documents is called enemy attestation. And this means that if someone mentions something in antiquity, uh, if, something men if someone mentions something in a historical document in which the opposing party would benefit from that account, and yet the one writing the account has a disdain or a dislike or is an opponent of the party who would profit from that account, then it's very likely to be historical. Uh, put succinctly, um, people who hate you don't make up lies to make you look good or to help your cause or any, or in any way. People who hate you are most likely, uh, they're most likely to make up lies to hurt you and to make you look bad. They're not going to make up lies to make you look good or to help your cause. And yet, with the death of Jesus, we have two unsympathetic, hostile sources to Christianity that attest that Jesus did die by crucifixion. One of them is Tacitus. In 
the very same passage where Tacitus writes that Jesus died by crucifixion, uh, he states that Christianity is a, quote, uh, superstition, a mischievous superstition. So he, he thinks that Christians are superstitious for believing in Christianity. Also, Lucian of Samosata was ridiculing Christians and their beliefs in the very passage where he affirms that Jesus died on the cross. So we have so not only do we have seven independent sources, in which case we have multiple attestation, and it is extremely unlikely that seven independent sources would fabricate the same event, but we have two independent enemy sources. So it's no wonder that Je that Jesus' death by crucifixion is just taken for granted in scholarship. The evidence for it is overwhelming. Minimal fact number two, <laughs> Jesus' empty tomb. How do we know that Jesus' tomb was empty? Because if Jesus' body still laid in the tomb, it would be impossible for belief in his resurrection to get off the ground. Christianity had quite a few enemies back then. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Romans, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, if... Jesus really hadn't risen from the dead, and if his body was still in the tomb, all that they would have to do to disprove the resurrection would be to go down to Jesus' tomb, take Jesus' body out of the tomb, and parade it down the street for all to see that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And everyone who would, get, who would lay their eyes upon Jesus' corpse being carried throughout the streets of Jerusalem would be convinced that the disciples' proclamation that he hadn't risen from the dead was a falsehood, that it wasn't true. Christianity would have died before it even began. But Christianity didn't die. In fact, it's still one of the most prominent religions in the world. How is this to be explained? How do we explain the fact that Christianity did not die in the first century? Well, I think the best explanation for that is that the enemies of Christianity did not go down to Jesus' tomb and take his body out of it and parade it down the street for everyone to look at to see that he hadn't risen from the dead. And the reason why they did not do that was because Jesus' body was gone. I mean, that would be the easiest way to disprove the resurrection. All that they would have had to do was go down to Jesus' tomb, take Jesus' body out of the tomb, and parade it down the street for all to see. And if it would have helped, they could have, uh, they could have hung him up from a high place so that, every, so that even more people could gaze upon his dead corpse. And Christianity would have died before it even began, but it didn't die. It's still, it's still practiced today, and I think the reason why it didn't die in the first century is because the enemies of Christianity did not go down to Jesus' tomb and pluck his body out. And the reason why they didn't do that was because his tomb wasn't in there to be plucked out. Jesus' tomb was empty. Now, some skeptics have responded to this argument by saying that by the time the disciples went around proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, his body would be unrecognizable. And therefore, the effect that the Pharisees and the Romans uh, desired to produce would not, it would not become a reality. That, 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 desire, that effect would not be produced 
simply by producing his body because his body would be unrecognizable by them. I mean, the, according to the book of Acts, the, they didn't start proclaiming the resurrection until 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. 50 days! That, that's, that's quite a good bit of time for decomposition to take place. So is this a good rebuttal to the Jerusalem factor, which is the name of the argument that I'm using? I don't think so. Why? Well, because in the arid climate of Jerusalem, Jesus' distinct crucifixion wounds, uh, a, a, a corpse's distinct wounds, his stature, and his hairstyle would still have been distinguishable even after 50 days. So if you, if Jesus did not rise from the dead and if his body was still in the tomb, they could have gone into the tomb and examined his body. Okay, does, they could have seen whether or not the corpse had the nail marks in the wrists where the Romans had nailed Jesus' wrists uh, at his crucifixion. They could have seen Okay, does he does this body have a spear wound, which is what Jesus endured when the Roman soldier uh, rammed a spear into his heart and lungs? Does this body have uh, holes in his feet where the spike would have been driven through? Uh, what about, does he have multiple punctures around the forehead area, which would be consistent with the crown of thorns? Uh, they could have easily distinguished these distinct crucifixion wounds, the, what, is, what is called the stigmata. They could have seen whether or not the corpse in the tomb had, his, uh, had holes in the wrists, holes in the feet, a spear wound in the side. Uh, and all that. And therefore, you could easily tell whether or not that was Jesus. Uh, moreover, Jesus' stature. Okay, you could say, you could see, is this body the approximate height and width that Jesus was? His hairstyle. Is what, does his hair look similar to Jesus' hair? All three of these things would be easy to identify. In fact, you don't have to be a forensic pathologist in order to figure these things out. You just have to look and pay attention. Uh, even a simpleton could could figure these things out. Um, but moreover, I, I think that anything but an occupied tomb would be devastating to Christianity. Um, just, think, just think about it. It is true, I think, that upon producing the corpse or upon pointing people to the occupied tomb, there the disciples and uh, other Christians might have uh, claimed that it was a hoax. They might have said, it's a lie from Satan. Jesus really did rise from the dead. They put Jesus's, they put this body in the tomb to make it look like Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. They're trying to fool you all. But I think that most people wouldn't believe them. I mean, just imagine, if, if, Joseph, if people were claiming that Joseph Smith rose from the dead, and you went down to the tomb and saw that there was still a body in his casket, would you... I mean, is there anything that that the Mormons could say that would convince you that that, was, that that body was not Joseph Smith? I mean, I think most of us would think, you know, you're pulling our leg. This, that really is Joseph Smith, and he hadn't risen from the dead. And the same thing would be true of Jesus. Uh, we would expect to see a mass exodus of believers. Uh, we would expect to see it, it would. We would expect 
for that to have a devastating impact upon Christianity, even if a few adherents still remained. Uh, and certainly this would have caught the attention of the early church fathers like Polycarp, Ignatius, Irenaeus. Uh, we would expect the second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr to give his rebuttal uh, to, get, to address this issue. And yet, church history is silent on this. Um, so I, I think the Jerusalem factor is still strong. A second reason we know that Jesus' tomb was empty is because all four gospel accounts depict women as being the primary witnesses to the empty tomb. And to appreciate this point, you have to understand the role of women in Greco-Roman society uh, back then. And women were, quite frankly, seen as second-class citizens. Uh, there are ancient rabbinic sayings. Uh, for example, in the Talmud, there's a, a rabbinic saying that says, Blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Um, another one went like this, uh, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Women were seen as second-class citizens. Moreover, their testimony was practically, worth, uh, practically worthless. Uh, the, t the Jewish Talmud goes so far as to say that a woman's testimony has equal credibility to that of a liar, uh, I mean, uh, of, a, of a robber. Some, someone, who, someone who is a thief would have more credibility, or at least equal credibility, to that of a woman. And the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, whom I talked about uh, moments ago, he says that their testimony was not ad even admissible in a court of law. Now, in light of this fact, how remarkable it is that it is women who are the chief discoverers of the empty tomb. If the disciples felt free to play loose with the facts, they would certainly have made male disciples, like Peter or John, discover the empty tomb. The fact that it is women, rather than men, who are the discoverers of the empty tomb, is best explained by the fact that, like it or not, they were the primary witnesses, and the Gospel writers faithfully recorded what was, for them, a rather awkward and embarrassing fact. So, by the principle of embarrassment, we have good reason to believe that Jesus's tomb is a his that Jesus's empty tomb is a historical fact. Now, what is the principle of em of embarrassment? This is another one of those tests of historicity that historians use when examining documents. If an if a historian mentions something in their writing that that either embarrasses them, embarrasses someone they care about, or ha or potentially discredits them, or has the potential to hurt their, the case or argument they're trying to make, then it's very likely to be historical. You see, people make up lies to make themselves look good and to get themselves out of trouble. They don't make up lies to make themselves look bad or to get themselves into trouble. Nobody does that. Nobody makes up lies that embarrasses themselves or makes themselves look bad or hurts the case or, or potential, potentially discredits an argument they're trying to make. Um, and certainly people don't make up implausible details about a lie if they're trying to make that lie seem credible. By making the women the chief witnesses to the empty tomb, 
the gospel authors would be putting words in the mouths of witnesses who would not be believed. Um, so, by the principle of embarrassment, we have good reason to believe that the, the tomb really was empty and the women were the chief witnesses to it. Why would you make someone whose whose testimony is not admissible in a court of law and who's and who and who's considered to have equal credibility to that of a of a thief your chief witness? It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. A third reason is that the earliest Jewish polemic against the resurrection was that the disciples came and stole away Jesus' body. I mean, I mean, they weren't saying that these men are full of new wine or that his corpse still remain in the tomb. No, they said that the disciples came and stole away his body. This is enemy attestation. By the principle of enemy attestation, we have very good reason to believe that this is historical. And this is mentioned in the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to read that passage now. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That's an implicit admission that the tomb was empty. I mean, when the, when, the, when the child tells his teacher that the dog ate his homework, that is an indirect admission that he doesn't have his homework. The homework is gone. He doesn't have it. Now, you might be wondering, this comes out of Matthew's Gospel. So how can we really, how can we say that this is enemy attestation? I mean, it's not like it's coming out of a book that's been discovered by archaeologists to have been written by Joseph Caiaphas and saying, oh yeah, they stole the body. Uh, so how do we know? Couldn't Matthew have made this bit up about the bribe in order to make the empty, his empty tomb story seem more credible? Well, no, I don't think so. Three reasons. I, I say that for, for three reasons. Number one, in the text, Matthew very clearly says that they were spreading this story around to this day. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. To this day. Now what does to this day mean? It means that even at the very moment that, that Matthew was writing his gospel, the Jews were going around telling potential converts, you shouldn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. This is just a, this is just a lie conjured up by his disciples uh, to make you think that he risen from the dead. They really stole the body. So if Matthew were lying about that... It would be far too easy to discredit him because he says they're doing it to this day, even at the moment he's writing his gospel. Matthew's gospel was the uh, was was written very early, and it circulated quite quickly. It was and it was the most popular gospel. It was written in a time and circulated around where people who were still living eyewitnesses. And these living eyewitnesses could have checked, checked it out 
for themselves. They could have asked the Jewish leadership, are you saying this about uh, the disciples stealing the body? And if, if it weren't true, the, the leadership would say, no, we don't, we don't know of you know, what happened to the body, but we certainly, we don't, certainly have never said that they stole it. Matthew would be ridiculed and discredited if this were not a notorious fact. And if people did investigate it and found out that he was a liar, that would cast doubt on other things that he said. Well, they might think, well, maybe Matthew is lying about other things. If he would lie about this, what else is he not telling us? I don't think Matthew would put himself in such a position to be so easily falsified. Secondly, if the Jewish leadership really weren't spreading this story around, then why did Matthew say that they were? This would be to answer an accusation that nobody made. Uh, for example, if you discovered one day that your car was missing from your driveway and you panicked and you said, Oh no, my car is gone. What happened to it? Uh, what happened to... Dude, where's my car? And your friend came up to you and said, Oh gee, that's a shame. I don't know what happened to your car. But it's not like I stole it or anything. That would that would make him look very suspicious. And you would look at him funny and say, "Well, I I never accused. I never said you stole my car." Wait a minute. What are you not telling me? <laughs> so in the same way, I mean, uh, when people defend themselves against accusations that nobody made, that seems to imply that they really did do the thing that they're denying. Um, and Matthew would be the same way. If they really weren't spreading, the st if the Jews really weren't spreading the story around that the disciples stole the body, Matthew would be pretty much saying, Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, Jesus' body was gone. His tomb was empty. But it's not empty because we stole the body or anything. No, that's not it. It's empty because he rose from the dead. That would make Matthew look very suspicious, wouldn't it? I mean, he's bringing up an objection to the resurrection. Uh, and and I only I can only I can't think of any reason why he would make this story up unless he were attempting to refute detractors of Christianity who were saying that this is what happened to the body. In fact, to, to say that that to say otherwise, to say well we didn't steal the body when no one is set was saying that. That seems to cast suspicion on Matthew. But I think the most powerful reason for thinking that this was the earliest Jewish polemic is that it's multiply attested. For not only does Matthew mention it in chapter 28 of his gospel, but Justin Martyr mentions it as well in the second century. He, he mentions this in his dialogue with Trypho. He says that the Jews are still going around s spreading this story. Tertullian also says that this was happening in his day. So it's multiply attested. It is mentioned in three independent sources. Matthew, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian. So we have three independent sources that attest to it, and therefore it's very likely to be historical. Uh, what we have here, I think, is an early naturalistic theory brought up by the enemies of Christianity that originated in the first century, persisted to the second century and was still going on even in the third century. It started in the first century and persisted through the second and third. Okay, so these are the three pieces of evidence that we have for the empty tomb. Now, the third minimal fact. 
that and Jesus' disciples sincerely believed that he appeared to them after his death. This is the most important piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now, why is that? Because an empty tomb by itself proves nothing. An empty tomb by itself can easily be explained away. Natural, it can be easily explained away. It, the most powerful evidence for the resurrection is the appearances, and those are those are a lot harder to explain away than a mere empty sepulcher. And now, how do we how do we know that this is the case? Well, in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Paul is reciting an early creed that lists a bunch of appearances. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, Paul adds, he appeared to me also, as to one untimely born. Now, most scholars... The vast majority of historians, even the skeptical non-Christian scholars, agree that the Apostle Paul is the genuine, is the legitimate author of 1 Corinthians. And also, the vast majority of them think that Paul wrote this letter from about A.D. 50 to A.D. 55. This is already an extremely early tradition. I mean, this is just 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. Just two and a half decades. That's far too early for legend to grow up and to wipe out a solid core of historical truth. It's still in the... That, 8055, that's still in the lifetime of the vast majority of the eyewitnesses who were contemporaries of Jesus. But I think we can date it back even further. Well, first of all, how do we know it's a creed? Before I talk about the dating, how do we know it's a creed? There are four different reasons we know that this was an early creed of the Christian church. For one, Paul says, he says outright that he is not writing in his own hand here. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. I delivered to you, as of first importance, there, as of first importance, what I also received. In other words, I delivered this information to you, but this information is what I also received. I received this information, and now I'm going to pass it on to you. So, Paul is saying that the information he's about to recite is information that he himself received and is passing on. Moreover, receiving uh, received and passed on, or delivered, as the uh, ESV puts it, delivered and uh, received. Those were ancient rabbinical terms, technical, ancient technical rabbinical terms. When a rabbi was passing on holy tradition, he would use this phrase, received and passed on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So Paul received this information himself. It, it, didn't, originate, it didn't originate with him. He received it, and now he's passing it on to the church in Corinth. 
uh, and also received and passed on is ancient rabbinical literature uh, language. Moreover, um, so that that is one piece of evidence that this is an ancient creed. Secondly, there is non-Pauline language in verses three to seven of of First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, phrases such as "on the third day" and "was buried" and "in accordance with the scriptures." Uh, these are not characteristic language of Paul. Uh, and so, for that reason also, a lot of scholars think that this is uh, an ancient creed, because this Paul is... He, this language is non-Pauline. It's not characteristic of the way Paul usually talks. A third reason is that we see parallelism in the text. Uh, now, what is parallelism? Parallelism is a style of writing that you would find in ancient Greek poetry and also in other uh, creedal traditions and in, in other oral traditions. Um, so what that style of writing would go is that w the first line would be very long, the second line would be rather short, and then the next line would be rather long and followed by another short line. Long, short, long, short. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on... No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Long. That he was buried. Short. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Long. And that he appeared. Short. Long. Short. Long. Short. Also, the repeated use of the, of the phrase, And that and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and that he appeared, uh, and that he was raised from the dead, and that he appeared to Cephas. Uh, that is, it's rather rhythmic. Um, it's the ancient equivalent of words of sentences that rhyme. So that also seems to suggest that it is a very, uh, it, that, is, uh, that it is a creed, a piece of, a pre-Pauline piece of oral tradition. For these four reasons and others, most scholars believe that this is a creed that was used in the early church. So, but how early can we date this creed? Well, we already know that it dates to... So we, all, we already know that 1 Corinthians 15 was written in A.D. 55. So that's just 25 years after the death of Jesus. <laughs> so Paul also says, For I delivered... To you as of first importance what I what I also received for I delivered to you he's using the past tense he's saying I delivered this information to you in other words he's saying this information I'm about to pass on I, I already delivered it to you so what that means is that Paul must have given this creed to the church in Corinth during his first visit there uh, the visit that predates the writing of 1 Corinthians. But of course, Paul says, I he says that he received it himself. So it has to predate even his first visit to the church in Corinth. But how much earlier to the church in Corinth must this creed date? Well, most scholars think that Paul received the creed three years after his conversion, which would be five years after the death of Jesus. How, how did they come to this conclusion? 
Well, in Galatians 1, Paul is talking about his conversion from skepticism to being a Christian leader. He said he says that uh, he was a persecutor of the church, but God revealed his son to him, and and then he became a Christian. And then he, he said, I, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Then three years after I then three years after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So a lot of scholars think that this is this is when Paul received this ancient resurrection creed. Uh, he received it three years after his conversion when he went to Jerusalem and visited with with Peter and James. There are now there are two reasons why uh, scholars think that this is when uh, Paul received the creed. Number one. The, in the Greek, the Greek word that Paul uses there is historiasi, which is where we get our English word history. This indicates that Paul was not simply shooting the breeze with uh, Peter and James, but that they were talking serious doctrine. They were, they were talking about things that had happened recently. And also, another reason is that the people that Paul is conversing with, that he says he conversed with three years after his conversion, are Peter and James, two specifically named individuals in the creed. Uh, some scholars think that he received it even earlier, uh, when, when he went into Arabia or maybe Damascus, which would make the creed even earlier than that. Uh, but the consensus seems to be that he received it uh, at this point in time, as what Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, when he says, Three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Uh, and I agree with them. So... This is an extremely early attestation to the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to many people. Moreover, it seems to be eyewitness testimony. If this is really when Paul received the creed, and it seems to be when, uh, when he did, then he received it from the Apostle Peter, Peter, one of the original twelve disciples, and James. So this this is this is eyewitness testimony we're dealing with here, and it's extremely early. So what this means is this is within the lifetime of all of the eyewitnesses who were around when Jesus was preaching and teaching and traveling around and when he was crucified. It's just five years after his death. If the creed contained false information. The eyewitnesses could have come forward and pointed out all of the falsehoods. They could have discredited Paul and the originators of the creed. If Peter were lying about seeing the risen Jesus, if he were lying about the other disciples, i.e. the twelve seeing the risen Jesus, we would expect maybe Ma uh, Matthew or Thomas or uh, or 
John or some of the other disciples to come out and rebuke Peter and to tell Paul that Peter was lying, it would just be too easy to falsify this information. Moreover, given... So, this is, this is very good... This is a very powerful evidence that these people really did see Jesus. They, or at least that they thought they saw Jesus. In fact, the atheist scholar Gerd Ludemann writes, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which he appeared to them as the risen Christ. For a, for a, for, for a historian and skeptic, no less, to say that this is historically certain speaks volumes about the aspect of, uh, of, hi of this aspect of history. So, we've we have established historically that Jesus' disciples believed that he appeared to them after his death. Num minimal fact number four, the conversion of the, per of the church persecutor Paul. <laughs> How do we know that Paul believed that he saw Jesus? Well, we have excellent historical evidence that Paul was a persecutor of the Christian church prior to his conversion, and that later he became a leader of the Christian church and ultimately was beheaded by the Emperor Nero in AD 64, which proves that he sincerely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, how do we know that? How do we know, for example, that Paul was a persecutor of the church? Because in his letter to the to the Corinthians and in his letter to the Galatians, he talks about how he was a persecutor of the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, right after reciting this creed that I just talked about, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. And in Galatians, the, uh, he says, in Galatians chapter 1, Verse 13 to 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. We have very good reason to believe that Paul is telling the truth. On the, why? On the basis of the principle of embarrassment. If Paul really were not a persecutor of the church prior to his conversion, he would never say that he was. How many people... Uh, it, why would Paul make this up about himself? That Paul was a persecutor of the church. That he went around killing Christians, beating them, having them imprisoned, when he really didn't. That this is a shameful, embarrassing, and disturbing fact about himself that, he, that he's including in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Philippians. Paul would never make up such a shameful and disturbing thing about his past if it were not true. For an uh, as, as an analogy, if you were writing uh, a letter to your friend, would you just make up out of thin air, Oh, by the way, I killed several people last night, uh, several innocent people. I chopped them up into little pieces and buried their corpses underneath my house. Are you just going to make that up out of thin air? No! This is a disturbing thing to make up. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's dishonorable. You would never make this up. In fact, even if it were true, you probably wouldn't include that in your letter. You wouldn't admit to it even if it were true. 
but you especially wouldn't say it if it were false. And yet that's what we see in Paul's letters. He says, I was a persecutor of the church. You know, a few years ago, if I would have come across you guys praising Jesus, I would have had you stoned to death. I mean, Paul would not make this up about himself if it weren't true. So by the principle of embarrassment, we have good reason to believe that Paul was a persecutor. He, he wouldn't make something so shameful up. He wouldn't make up something so shameful if it weren't true. But we also have good reason to believe it based on the principle of multiple attestation. For not only does Paul mention it in his letters, but Luke mentions it as well in the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts records how uh, Saul of Tarsus assisted the martyrdom of Stephen. He, he helped kill Stephen. Paul and Luke are independent sources, and therefore there's multiple attestation. Therefore, it's likely that Paul being a persecutor is a historical fact. Because it's unlikely that both Paul and Luke would independently fabricate the same fiction about Paul's days as a persecutor. So, the historian's principle of multiple attestation, I mean, the, the historian's principle of embarrassment and the historian's principle of multiple attestation are good reasons to believe that Paul really was a persecutor of the church. Number one, Paul would never make up something so shameful about himself. He would not make up... I mean, how many of us really fabricate lies about how we used to be serial killers? I mean, that... You, you, people don't make that stuff up. In fact, even if it's true, they don't admit it. Uh, but also, not only does Paul mention it in his letters, in to, in his letters to the Corinthians, the Galatians, and the Philippians, but he all, but Luke mentions it as well in the book of Acts. Paul and Luke are independent sources, therefore there's multiple attestation of it, and therefore, I mean, we are on historical bedrock here. It's unlikely that Paul and Luke would make up the same thing. So we have established, not presupposing the inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible, just using the usual principles, the criteria that historians use in applying, uh, in examining other secular documents, we have come to the conclusion that Paul was a persecutor of the church. But we also know, historically, that Paul became a leader in the church. He became an evangelist. In fact, the reason why he's writing all of these epistles is because he's a Christian now. He's telling them how to live a good Christian life. He's helping them resolve theological disputes, theological questions that they have. They're, he's talking Christian theology here in these epistles that even critical scholars admit really were written by Paul. Um, also, we have good, independent, multiple attestation that Paul was that Paul suffered horribly for his Christian faith. He, he endured a lot of suffering because he was a Christian, and ultimately he was killed because of his Christian faith. Seven independent sources attest to Paul's suffering and martyrdom. Paul himself, in several of his epistles, talks about how he suffered. In fact, at one point he says that he was so miserable that he despaired of life himself. That he, he just wanted God to strike him down. He, he, he despaired of life itself. He says how he was uh, shipwrecked three times. How he was beaten. How he was stoned. How he was flogged. He says that at one time he even went hungry. And 
Luke, in the book of Acts, records some of Paul's suffering as well. So the fact that Paul suffered for it means that he, re- he sincerely believed that Christianity was true. And, and since Paul and Luke are independent sources, again, there's multiple attestation of it. It's unlikely that they would both independently make up Paul's suffering. But several uh, of the church fathers record Paul's martyrdom. For example... Tertullian, who wrote just before AD 200, reports the martyred deaths of Peter and Paul. Clement of Rome reports the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Polycarp mentions Paul's martyrdom. Uh, Oregon likewise attests to it. In all, we have seven independent sources that attest to the suffering of Paul and ultimately his martyrdom. So, we have established not presupposing the inspiration of the Bible, but just examining the documents like a historian would secular documents, that Paul was a persecutor of the church, that he beca- and, but later he became a Christian, and he suffered horribly bec- for being a Christian and ultimately was martyred. How do we explain this? Well, I think the, the best explanation is the one that Paul himself gave. Then he, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, we have established historically that Jesus died by crucifixion, that his tomb was found empty, that his disciples sincerely believed that he appeared to them after his death, and that Paul was converted from being a persecutor to being a Christian because of what he perceived was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Okay, last one. Last minimal fact. The appearance to the skeptic James. Now, this is not James, the son of Zebedee, the older brother of John the Apostle. This is Jesus' brother, James. All four Gospels attest to the fact that Jesus had brothers. Uh, James, Jude, uh, Jude, Simon, and some unnamed sisters. Uh, We are told that James was a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime but that later he became a leader in the Jerusalem church and in fact ultimately was martyred for his Christian faith. Now how do we know that James was a martyr? Well, we know this on the basis of two of the historian's principles. The principle of embarrassment and the principle of multiple attestation. It was embarrassing back in those days for a rabbi's family not to accept him. It was embarrassing for a rabbi's family to be opposed to him uh, in some way or another back in ancient Jewish society. Uh, so this does not make Jesus look very good, it, 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 given the stigmatism that there was of a rabbi's family who did not accept him. But even worse is that not only did Jesus' family disagree with his theology, they thought he was crazy. In fact, at one point they come to seize him and take him home. Uh, but also, it doesn't make Jesus' family look very good either. In fact, we have one fairly vicious story uh, that where Jesus' brothers try to goad him into a death trap by showing himself publicly at a feast when they knew that the Jewish leadership were seeking to have him killed. This is mentioned in chapter 7 of John's Gospel. 
So, I mean, Jesus' brothers are trying to goad him into a death trap by showing himself publicly at a feast when they knew that they were trying to have Jesus killed. They're trying to, they're trying to sabotage him. Uh, so, on the basis of the principle of embarrassment, I think we're on good historical bedrock here. There's no way that the gospel authors would make this up, given the stigmatism that there was uh, of a rabbi whose family did not accept him, and the fact that it makes Jesus, their beloved, lead, their beloved leader, it makes his family look bad because they're trying to have him killed. Also, uh, we know it on the basis of multiple attestation. For not only does uh, John mention it, but Mark mentions it as well. John mentions it in chapter 7 of his gospel, and Mark mentions it in chapter 3 of his gospel. Mark and John are independent sources, and therefore there's multiple attestation to it. It is unlikely that both Mark and John would independently fabricate uh, the skepticism on the part of James. So, we've established that James was a skeptic. But we can also establish that James became a leader in the, Jeru in the Jerusalem church. He became a Christian. How do we know this? Well, we know this because the book of Acts records it, but also Paul mentions it as well in his letter to the Galatians. Again, Paul and Luke are independent sources and therefore, there's multiple attestation to it. And we know that James was martyred for belief in his brother as the risen Lord. Um, Josephus mentions it. I already, I already quoted uh, this citation of James's martyrdom when talking about the testimony of Flavianum. Uh, but Josephus mentions it. He records that James was stoned to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin uh, for his faith in Jesus because he was a, quote, breaker of the law. Uh, but not only does Josephus report it, but Hegesippus re records it as well, as does Clement of Alexandria. So Josephus, Hegesippus, and Clement of Alexandria all report James's martyrdom, and therefore there's multiple attestation to it. Three independent sources attest to James's martyrdom, and it's unlikely that these three independent sources would all fabricate the same event. So, we have established that... But, um... What could, what could cause James to do this? To go from being a skeptic to being a church leader and a Christian martyr? I mean, most of us have brothers. I don't. I only have a, a younger sister. But a lot of us have brothers. Uh, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Lord was such that you would go to your death proclaiming this as James did when he was martyred by the Jewish Sanhedrin? I can think of no other explanation than the one that is mentioned in the 1 Corinthians 15 Creed. Then he appeared to James. In fact, the atheist scholar Reginald H. Fuller says that even if he says that even if there were not an appearance to James mentioned by Paul, we should have to invent one in order to account for James's days as a skeptic and then his days as a as a uh, Jewish a Christian leader in the Church of Jerusalem, and ultimately a martyr. So, these are the five minimal facts. Now, what can we draw from this? Well, I think that Jesus rose from the dead. This looks, this looks to all the world like a resurrection. 
um, Jesus died. He was buried. He uh, rose from the dead. And so, I mean, uh, he, he died. He was buried. His tomb was found empty. And shortly after his tomb was found empty, several people on different occasions believed that they saw him. Seems like a resurrection to me. Uh, there have been other naturalistic theories, and I will address those in part two to this lecture. Uh, but I think the best one is the resurrection. It has the best explanatory power and the explanatory scope to account for the data. If Jesus rose from the dead, it explains why his tomb was found empty, why his disciples believed that, they, that he appeared to them. It explains why Paul... Uh, converted on what he believed was an appearance. It explains why James converted based on what he believed was an appearance. And so I think this is the best explanation of the facts. And uh, my, my conclusion is, he is risen. So, I hope you enjoyed that uh, admittedly kind of shoddy quality. You could hear the air conditioner, and uh, whenever I, I had some throat problems, cleared my throat frequently. But, you know, overall, I thought it was a good file. Hopefully you enjoyed that and uh, learned some resurrection apologetics to give a reason for the hope that is in you if anyone asks this easter season thank you for listening to the cerebral faith podcast i will be back next week with part two of this old 2015 recording thank you god bless